Welcome, everybody, to a special USMNT-centric episode of the Total Soccer Show. They're all sort of USMNT-centric, but this one especially so. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Here with me this evening to discuss the USA's 2-1 to friendly loss to Switzerland is a man who is feeling anything but neutral after that performance. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. <laughs> At first, I didn't pick up on the Switzerland thing, and I, I was like, well, Taylor, I actually am feeling kind of neutral, because I always am feeling kind of neutral about soccer games in the U.S. specifically, but uh, no, that's just a clever clever intro from you, sir. Well played. I try. I try. Let's, <laughs> actually, I do sort of want to start with that, because when we do the quick take, hot take version of this, which we're going to do when the Gold Cup comes around, uh, it tends to be about like the basic feeling we had after the game. I try to avoid social media to the extent I can, so it's sort of... Going into recording, here were my takeaways, here were some things I was concerned about, here's some questions I had, and then we rewatch, then we do the detailed review. We did not obviously do the quick take hot take this time around. So for you, Joe, sort of before the rewatch, broadly speaking, how were you feeling at the full-time whistle? I felt like this was a test for the U.S., and it, and it was, right? When we look at the quality of opposition that Switzerland are, they're... They're one of the top 15, I believe, best teams in the world, according to FIFA rankings, if you want to put any mm-hmm. stock in those. But they're talent-wise on par with Mexico in terms of teams in CONCACAF, and they're pretty on par with the U.S. I think that's that's yep. true even after watching this game. And so I, I came into this game, and I know that's not what you asked, but I came into this game thinking this was a test, and I came out of this game thinking, man, I'm glad that we don't actually have to talk about this as if it was a pass-fail test, because <laughs> the U.S. didn't pass, but I also don't think they failed, right? They didn't. They didn't totally yeah. fail. They didn't totally crash and burn. There were a lot of stages of this game that weren't pretty. The second half wasn't pretty. And that always happens in friendlies when you have six subs coming on over the course of that last 45 minutes. But it's not as fun to watch. And I left feeling slightly discouraged after that. And and I think that's fair. I'm guessing a lot of folks out there are feeling the same way. But again, I'm glad this isn't pass-fail because we did learn some things. And I was mm-hmm. really encouraged by some things I saw in possession and defensively from the U.S. in this game. And I think we're going to use the old letter grade system, or at least I am. And I'm going to give them a solid C. All right. A solid C. Yeah, that's that's roughly where I am, I think. I think I'm a little bit more flummoxed than you might be just because it was such an exciting, high-pressing, high-tempo game at time, and there were some bright moments for the U.S., but overall, there were also almost like systemic problems, it seemed, that made me wonder if we've moved to a new level of against stronger opposition with the U.S. trying to play this kind of high-tempo, high-pressing, high-up-the-field style how do they evolve it? How do they adjust it to be able to handle some of the things that maybe a more talented team is going to throw at them? Honduras might not, no disrespect to Honduras, but Switzerland certainly can. So, okay, we're both kind of on the not not good, but not horrible <laughs> path. We'll see right. where we end up at the end of this one. Um, let's start at the beginning. That makes sense. Uh, let's get to the lineups and the approach. We had done our preview. We talked a little bit about this game with uh, Adam Bells of the Scuffed Podcast. They will obviously be doing their own episode. Be sure to check that one out, too. Uh, but, Joe, for this one, we did not have Tyler Adams as ex- as expected, we did not have Christian Pulisic or Zach Steffen because of their Champions League commitments. Uh, then we did not have Daryl DK, Brian Reynolds, and Chaturo Odunze dressing for this one. Uh, so we got more or less the starting 11 we expected. Uh, were there any sort of wrinkles in there that you didn't see coming, or was this about what you assumed Burhalter would do? 
This is about what I assumed, and I think what most mm-hmm. folks assumed. There were a few kind of 50-50s as I look at them. Musa and Leggett is one 50-50 because we know yep. Berhalter likes Sebastian Leggett, and frankly, I don't have any issue with that. I think Leggett's a very useful player. Musa has a higher ceiling, but right now they both bring really valuable things. So that's one where it could have gone either way, and it ended up being Leggett. Maybe Kellen Acosta could have gone over Jackson Yule. You, me, and Bells talked about that last week. But, I mean, again, not really super surprising that that happened. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the other one that was a 50-50 is maybe Mark McKenzie versus Matt Miazga, yeah. and McKenzie got that start. And, Taylor, I don't know what you thought but, or how you saw it, but I thought he actually did, did pretty darn well in that role. Yeah, and our list of things that are uh, in the any positives or any positive performances to note category, uh, which we'll get to obviously later, uh, I did have Mark McKenzie as one of my positives because I thought the partnership with Brooks seemed pretty good. But then he also, I think, playing as an individual, chose the right moments to step, chose the right moments to get into the kind of physical 1v1s in the air on the ground, and then other times did a good job of holding the line of organizing the defense. So yeah, I thought a, a good performance from him. I thought... An okay, I think, good, I think, performance from Serginho Dest, who also started at left back, which meant Reggie Cannon at right back. But yeah, I'm with you that those were kind of the the, the wrinkles such as they were to this starting 11. What I didn't necessarily expect was the intensity of the press we saw from the U.S. from the jump. They went at Switzerland. They tried to commit numbers forward. They tried to sort of crowd the middle, make things uncomfortable. And I think they did that especially when Switzerland were building from deep. It seemed less effective, the press and the making Switzerland difficult or like uncomfortable as the Swiss approached midfield. That's my sort of basic read on things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. From the start of this game, I have in all caps and in bold in my notes with uh, my section on the U.S.'s tactics, high pressing from the start. That's what they did in this game. And they really, really dug into that press when Switzerland were building up, exactly like you said, Taylor. The way I noticed it, especially at the beginning of this game when things were more clear-cut, it descended a little bit into chaos as things went on. But we'll try to make sense out of that chaos a little bit later. But the high press with the U.S. out of that 4-3-3, it started with that front line. Josh Sargent as the 9, you had Gio Reyna on the right, and Brendan Aronson on the left, which I guess is another question mark from this game. We didn't know who would start in that other wing spot. Mm -hmm. We assumed Gio Reyna would have one, so then it's Brendan Aronson versus Weah for that other spot, and Brendan Aronson got it in this game. We saw Tim Weah off the bench later on. But in this high press, it's that front three, Sargent, Reyna, Aronson, and then it was the the midfield two, or in front of that number six, I guess. So it's the two number eights, Weston McKenna, and Sebastian Legit. And they those five players were pressing up really high against Switzerland's back three. They were in more of a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-3 as I saw it in this game. So you had the front three mm-hmm. on the back three and the goalkeeper, and then you had McKenney and Legette as that the, the two number eights stepping up high onto Switzerland's double pivot, double pivot of Granite Xhaka and Zakaria in midfield. And so it was almost man v man. It was it was man to man in that space which made it hard for Switzerland at times to build up because they didn't have a lot of space to play through the middle and through their double pivot. But at the same time, then you leave yourself open to be manipulated and pulled out of different spaces, and we saw that as the game wore on. Yeah, and certainly for uh, at least one, if not both, of Switzerland goals, I think they were able to bypass the press, play out of it, and cause the U.S. problems of their own. We'll talk about how they did that as we go. Uh, and But for Switzerland, I thought they looked like a team that is going to do very well at the Euros yes. because, yes, there were moments when they gave the ball away cheaply. I think I saw a couple of people criticizing them for the dedication to building out of the back even when it didn't seem to be working. But I think, if anything, this game is maybe 
a good example of why you persist with that. Because as the game went on, they got more comfortable. They got more confident on the ball. Uh, Summer, especially in goal, I saw waiting until the very last minute to make some passes. And you have to believe he was very stressed about those, that he felt that pressure. But I think pulling in the U.S. a couple more yards did start to cause problems and did help Switzerland find their confidence when building. And then certainly as they advanced the ball up upfield, they had the kind of combinations from, from World Cup qualifying already being underway, from Nations League, from preparation for the Euros, from Euro qualifying. We've got lots of different competitions happening at the same time, which does give, I think, Switzerland lots of familiarity. Having uh, Petkovic be there for, I think, almost 500 games at this point, I think also helps them know what to do and how to play out of sort of high-pressure situations. And I, and I do think that after maybe those opening 30 minutes or so, Switzerland started to dic- dictate things a little bit more. The U.S maybe starting to feel a little bit of the uh, the running, a little bit more winded, maybe less precise in some of what they were doing, and I think we're made to pay for it. We're going to talk a lot about the U.S., and I guess we kind of already have, mm-hmm. about the U.S. breaking things down and being broken down defensively, but I don't yep. want us to lose sight of how how good Switzerland were in this game, yep. how well-drilled they look. They look, Taylor, like a team yeah. that's going to excel at this tournament that we're going to preview. Yes. And that's exactly what you just said, and I want to echo that because it's so true. You have Shakiri drifting between the lines constantly. You have Mbolo dropping down and, and overloading yep. midfield. And you have fullbacks coming inside. Rodriguez, sorry, wingbacks coming inside. R- Rodriguez on that left side tucking inside as a central midfielder. In the second half, all, all hell broke loose, and players started rotating everywhere. Wingbacks dropping down, yep. center, central midfielders pushing high. They looked like a well-oiled machine handling whatever changes the U.S. tried to make and whatever defensive structure the U.S. tried to put out there. Switzerland handled them all with with relative ease. There were some mistakes in build-up, and there were some real moments where the U.S. threatened with their high press and caused Switzerland a lot of problems. But, man, they looked excellent for large, large stretches of this game. They really did. And I would say even with the U.S. scoring in the fifth minute on a counterattack of sorts— I, I kind of, in my head, forgetting how that went down, uh, because again, goldfish brain, like thinking at the end of the game, I remembered it as like, oh, the U.S. were able to like, cause Switzerland a bunch of problems when they were trying to build out. And then and then they were able to score a goal really early because of that. And in reality, it was Switzerland essentially being caught uh, further up the field. It's Jackson Ewell with a good interception, plays it forward. The U.S. get numbers forward. But it is... A, a very fortunate goal in the end. There's the the poor clearance from, I believe, Elvedi. Then there's a couple different like moments in there where somebody could have had a shot, and in the end, it's Legette who ends up slotting it home. So it's 1-0, and it's a well-taken chance for Legette. But watching it again, the ball in from Reyna isn't that good. Like It's not as though it was just he put it on the head of somebody, they scored, and it was clinical. But it was also the U.S. when they did get the ball into Switzerland's defensive third. It was relatively slow it was good passing it was trying to open up it was trying to find some space but it was still sort of moving the ball around and it ends with Reyna literally putting his foot on the ball rolling it out in front and hitting that cross in that's partially cleared and then we end up getting the goal and I think I'm just trying to make that point known not to criticize the U.S. not to take anything away from the goal because the goal is a goal but just to say that even the goal for the United States wasn't them figuring out Switzerland, finding a way through, passing their way through and getting a goal, it did feel a little bit fortunate, a little bit opportunistic that the U.S. were able to get that goal. And I think also explains why they didn't have as many clear-cut chances as the game went on. Yeah, one thing I thought Switzerland did really well in this game was get numbers behind the ball. And we we saw it on mm-hmm. this goal, even though it, it didn't turn out well for Switzerland. It is that fluky shot that Sebastian Legette, the ball just falls to him and he scores it. 
But I, I think Switzerland consistently throughout this match got seven players back behind. And, and it was yeah. usually their back seven. If you just take the front three out of the 10 outfield players, they're, they're two wing backs, they're three or they're two central midfielders and then they're back three. They would collapse so quickly and made life so challenging for the U.S. to try to break through because that's, that's a big thing for the U.S. When we talk about their possession, I tend to focus on the buildup. And then I tend to focus on what they do in the final third. The middle third, we don't talk about quite as much because that's not, I guess it doesn't catch our eyes as much. It doesn't catch my eyes as much as when you're facing the high press in your own third. And when you're trying to break down a block in the final third, the U.S. didn't do a lot of block breaking in this game. They didn't do a lot of, of penetrating into dangerous spots. They did some. I'm not trying to take that away. There were some really nice flashes. Weston McKinney had a great ball in the 82nd minute into Tim Weah in the box for a, a nice chance from him. I believe he got a shot off. Mm-hmm. Sergino Dest did some nice things. There were good moments, Brendan Aronson as well, but not this consistent threat in, in the final third. And I think a lot of that has to do with how quickly Switzerland got their numbers back behind the ball to deal with those kinds of attacks, even if it didn't pay off for them on Legette's goal early on in this game. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything you said. And then I would also point out that that is a good sort of contrast in styles that with the United States, I think with Switzerland getting the ball or getting numbers back, as you mentioned, it requires patterns. I think it requires some different combinations that have been practiced and studied and they know, okay, if I play the ball here, you go here, that opens up space for you. And then the ball goes to you. And now that guy's open. I'm sure that was vague enough for people to follow. <laughs> but the basic idea being what we saw from Switzerland, that there's rotation, that there's somebody dropping, somebody staying higher. And it's all about pulling players out of position to open up or to open up opportunities either for the individual or for the attacking unit. And for the U.S., what I saw was some of that, but a lot, especially in the second half, a lot of individuals trying to make something happen. It was a lot of 1v1 take-ons, trying to dribble through, and then going for a lateral pass or a square ball. Even in the first 30 minutes or so, there's a moment when the U.S. get the ball out wide. I think it's Dest playing it in, but there are three U.S. players all kind of standing at the back post, waiting for the ball to be served in. And you contrast that with Switzerland, who had tons of movement and you didn't get as many aimless crosses from them as many hopeful crosses that is you got a lot more incisive passing and holding the ball and playing out of pressure and pulling the U.S. out and making them uncomfortable and then finding opportunities to get shots off and I think to some extent the U.S. were really fortunate in the end that this finished the way it did because it could have been four or five if they had their shooting boots on yeah I mean it could have been and I think the best example of that well well-detailed and well-organized attacking sequence honestly does come on Switzerland's first goal, Taylor. It's the 10th minute. Let's talk about it then. It's, it's Rodriguez who eventually scores on that left side, but it all starts with the U.S. pressing high in the attacking half. That's yeah. a huge theme of this game, not just the opening stages, but really the entire game. The U.S. is pressing high, and Taylor, I'm going to let you fill in your version of it, but I want to, I want to give my notes first on this. And so it's, it's Jackson Ewell stepping to deal with a dropping striker from Switzerland. That was a big theme from then. They would drop Mbolo or they would drop Seforovic down mm-hmm. into midfield to overload that space. Jackson Ewell stepped to him in this instance, and that left acres of space for Shakiri between the lines. So this all happens mm-hmm. because they can play the ball out to their right side on that side, and that's where Shakiri was consistently dropping. It was the U.S.'s left, out by John Brooks, Switzerland's right side, and because Jackson Ewell's not able to deal with Shakiri, John Brooks then theoretically has to step to deal with him, but John Brooks isn't ready for that. He's not prepared to do that. So the entry ball comes into Shakiri. He can turn, go forward, and then they switch the ball over to Rodriguez on that side. The U.S. can't deal with the attack, is my point, in the attack. They, they can't deal with this in their press. Ewell can't win the ball, and I don't think that's his fault off of Seforovic. John Brooks 
Brooks doesn't either know to step to win the ball or he's way too late to do that. And really, it's Sergino Dest who has to close down the ball faster to discourage that entry pass into Shakiri in the first place. But none of those things go right. Shakiri gets on the ball, drives forward, and it's, it's done from there. Taylor, mm-hmm. what did you see on this goal? What went wrong for the U.S. in the high press that maybe I didn't get to? I will take it a, a step further back. Sure. Because, and and I think there are many things that we can talk about when it comes to Josh Sargent. I'm not saying this was necessarily his worst moment. I'm not even trying to single him out. But I will say that a lot of this goal comes from Josh Sargent making a mistake here. Because as the U.S. are pressing, the ball gets played back to Sommer, the goalkeeper. Uh, Sar- Sargent is closing him down and trying to force him because the ball has come from right the right side of the field to the goalkeeper. You're trying to force them either into a mistake or force them to the other side. They play it to the left, and then the U.S. close down there. But Sargent's angle is wrong, and Sommer is able to cut back on him and play it back out wide to the right. And once that happens, because everybody has already started to shift, that's why a lot of those pieces aren't able to be covered. Because now, Aronson has to go step, leaves his man, which means Dest has to step to that mark, which now leaves John Brooks split between Shakiri and uh, the right wing back for Switzerland, Vidmer. And so he can't step to Shakiri in that moment. He ha- Because if he does, he risks leaving a, a wingback wide open at midfield, so he has to try to split the difference. And again, not trying to say, like, if Sargent hadn't done that, this isn't a goal, but I am trying to show that against opposition that is as well-drilled and as talented as Switzerland, you can't make those individual mistakes. That's the fundamental aspect of the press, is that you can't get beaten 1v1, because if you do, someone else has to make up for it, and someone else has to cover for them, and you have this sort of domino effect. And once you do, you've got Jackson Ewell trying to close down Seferovic, but then he's vacating space. You you can't have John Brooks stepping, and so you end up with people kind of pinned in positions they don't want to be, and you have Switzerland then, I think as they turn to attack, it's 3v3, and with their second wave of attackers coming in, it ends up being a, a 6v5 advantage because the U.S. are bypassed in that way. And so it is individual moments. It is also, I think, the collective unit for the U.S. breaking down in that moment. And obviously, it's not great tracking at the back post uh, because Rodriguez is there to get that shot off, to get that equalizer. But I thought it was a really interesting sequence to go back and watch from the beginning to see how the U.S., if Sargent does cut off that angle, I think it really nullifies what the Swiss are able to do. But because he doesn't, doesn't, I think it leads to that goal, but it also gives Switzerland just a little bit more comfort, a little bit more confidence. And I think from there, they start to move the ball around with a bit more ease than they had in those opening maybe 10 minutes. The margin for error in moments like this is just so incredibly small. And it's always small in a press. But it's even smaller with how the U.S. pressed in this game. When I first was was starting to talk about how the U.S. played and how they were defending, I, I said, I think I said, maybe maybe I didn't, somebody wants to go back and, and double check and fact check me on this, but I think I said they were defending man-to-man almost in that front group with the front three on the center yeah. backs and you have the goalkeeper in there, so it, that messes with things a little bit. But then you had Weston McKenney and Leggett on Switzerland's double pivot. It's man-to-man. Then it was the wing backs or the U.S.'s fullbacks on the opposing wing backs, and then you have Jackson Ewell and the two center backs on Shakiri and the two forwards. It really did work out to be a man-to-man kind of press for the U.S., more so than I think we've seen really ever under Greg Berhalter, or certainly more so than I've ever noticed under Greg Berhalter. And because it's so man-to-man, 
that's when you see these mistakes. That's when you see players defending in spaces or defending against players where they're not comfortable defending. When I was watching this game, it looks like, and it looked like the San Jose Earthquakes under Matias Almeida a little bit. With these players being oh pulled out of position, the U.S. was mm-hmm. chasing. But it, it, it didn't, it didn't, you know, chasing can be okay if you're chasing and you know where you're going and, and how to win the ball. The U.S. didn't look like that. They didn't look like that on this goal with, with Sargent kind of starting that domino effect. And they didn't look like it later on in this game. Baralter said it after the match. The U.S. wasn't compact enough in the second half, especially. I would even, he was talking specifically about that second 45, but I'd extend that to the first half. I don't think the U.S. was either compact enough or they weren't confident enough or capable enough to win those individual matchups. And when you're not winning those matchups and the chain is broken, then you're really dealing with some problems. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. I agree with everything you said. I would say uh, the U.S. did make Switzerland uncomfortable when they were building from deep. Once they got the ball around midfield, it seemed like the United States were the ones who were routinely uncomfortable. And it seemed like Switzerland kept having just that one outlet option. They kept being able to find passing options. And I think a big reason for that was because the U.S. in the shape they had in that 4-3-3, Jackson Ewell sitting deeper, Weston McKinney and Sebastian Legette ahead of him. And I think the idea was McKinney and Legette are certainly paying attention to the, the players around them, to the marks that they would have, but also they're trying to cut off angles. They're trying to cut off passing options behind them so that you don't have to mark people who run run in behind or don't have to mark people that get into that space because you're able to cut those options off. But when Switzerland bypass the initial press, then have time on the ball, now they can have a runner go and maybe Legette just... Like, like cheats a little bit to the left to make sure that that one's covered. But now in cheating to the left a yard or two, yeah. he's opened up a yard or two of space yeah. central. And I think Switzerland, especially around midfield, started to pull that midfield apart so much so that it made me hit my mic in frustration, <laughs> apparently. Um, but I think that's when you are like then relying on Jackson Yule to close down that space. If the ball goes between Legette and McKinney and now it's into the path, like like maybe five yards to the left of Yule, he has to try to slide over. Sometimes he can make that play, but other times if there's a player there, he has that same John Brooks dilemma from the opening goal of do I track my marker or my, my player or do I go and step to that player? And I think he tried his best to split the difference and to be aggressive in reads. I did notice John Brooks as the game went on on a couple different occasions telling Yule to step or telling Yule to slide slide to one side or the other. And I think that maybe goes to the concerns we had about Ewell as the more defensive midfielder and that Tyler Adams is able to cover that ground a little bit more, I think reads the game a little bit better, uh, certainly because of the way Leipzig play. I think Adams has that sort of foundational background that maybe Ewell doesn't when it comes to defending. Uh, And so I think that also hurt the U.S. I think the way Burhalter adjusted to that helped the United States and then simultaneously hurt them. And I think that was another aspect of this game was the U.S. putting out fires, but in putting out those fires, sort of opening themselves up to other vulnerabilities on the other side of the field or right next to the player, as the situation might have been. So what changes, Taylor, did you notice as the game went mm-hmm. on? Did Berhalter try to tweak things? Because Switzerland made some changes at halftime. They, they brought yeah. on three new players. Shakiri and a couple others came off. And I thought Shakiri again, was just... So good. He he was in in those moments where you're talking about a central midfielder, Legette or or Yule having to shift to to a side or having to look over and mm-hmm. check on somebody, maybe step a couple yards to the side. I think he was the guy responsible for so many of those moments from the U.S. Those moments of indecision and those moments of yep. of just opening that that block up and that shape up. I think Shakiri was a big part of that and oftentimes responsible for that. But did you notice a, a tweak from Baralter in the second half, Taylor, and how they approached that second forty five? 
Yeah, I did. I think I did at least. And I think that's where I get to the idea of like it helps and it hurts at the same time because what I did see in the second half was one of the other sort of number eight, number tens, uh, Weston McKinney or Sebastian Legette, usually it was Legette, would drop in and basically be alongside Ewell. So we almost had more of a 4-2-3-1 shape in the second half when defending around midfield, which does help you in terms of having Legette back there. Now Ewell doesn't have to kind of, as the single pivot, slide to one side or the other and deal with everything coming through. He has a partner there. But if the U.S. are trying to apply pressure further up and make Switzerland uncomfortable, so they have to play faster, they have to play balls they're not 100% satisfied with, now you're taking a player out of that, so you're making other players do more running, or as was often the case in the second half, you're giving Switzerland much more time on the ball around midfield, uh, and when that player is, say, Granite Xhaka, who can... It's like throw a feint and then split defenders really easily with the disguised pass. That can lead to assisting. I think maybe it was the MLS assist. Maybe it was like the triple assist <laughs> for their their uh, go ahead goal. But I think once those midfielders, Zakaria and Jaka, and then Shakiri, as you already mentioned, started to get more time and combine more easily in little passing triangles. Though the U.S. had more defensive presence through the middle it was simultaneously less effective because you didn't have that ability to step and press high and kind of hassle Switzerland into making mistakes. Instead, they sat a little bit deeper and invited more of that pressure, but I think then weren't able to alleviate it very successfully. Yeah, the U.S. was chasing. I said it before and I'll say it again. They they were chasing in this game. They were defending in this man-oriented way. Even if you shift to have more cover deeper down in your own midfield, you still have to step to pressure the ball. And the U.S. really couldn't do that consistently, or at least they couldn't time their pressure right. Because even on Switzerland's second goal, Granit Xhaka has the ball, and Musa tries to go step and pressure him. But the pressure's too late, or it's not at the right angle, or maybe it's a combination of the two. And Granit Xhaka can just play that pass around the one you're alluding to, Taylor, over to Zubra on the left side. Then Zubra can drive it forward, play a ball into the box, then... The U.S. can't clear it. Des can't clear it out of that space. And Zuber just gets on the end of his own pass eventually and scores. That's that's the game winner, essentially. That's the go-ahead goal yep. in the 63rd minute. If you trace it back, it happens because Musa either can't time his run or can't close that angle. I said it already. It's a really challenging balance to find when you're defending spaces that are either unfamiliar to you or you're just being pulled out of position and you can't set your lines. You can't defend in a compact way. And the U.S. Mm-hmm. just didn't do that in the second half. And again, Baralter fessed up to that and owned that after the game. And that's one thing as we go into Nations League that I'm going to be watching for. How does the U.S. balance their pressuring and their, their pressing and their stepping high while also needing to sit deep and compress space at times and make life hard for the other team mm-hmm. in their own half? I have one possible solution, which I think also goes a long way towards explaining, especially in the second half, why the U.S. really struggled. And it's that uh, it's something we talked about when we were previewing uh, the Champions League final, and it didn't necessarily help Manchester City. But the way that they limit counterattacking threats is by making sure they keep the ball and making sure they're passing simple and moving and they have their triangles, they have their easy options so they can keep the ball moving, they can keep possession, and that is where you can catch your breath. That is where you can slow things down, make the opponent kind of chase you around or not, and they can sit in, but you can then sort of slow it down until you're ready to then attack. But that's where you can dictate the play. But the United States, I felt like in the second half especially, were so focused on making something 
something happen, playing it long into the channels or having when they would get sort of numbers in and around the box. It was a lot of, as I said earlier, 1v1 take-ons trying to sort of get to the end line, pull some defenders out and then cut that ball back. The problem there is that when you're relying on those 1v1s, number one, it it is really sort of a like, are you going to be good enough in that moment to get around the defender? It's always a, a bit of a dice roll. But if you're not, you have left your team exposed. And I do think the U.S. in trying to kind of quickly attack without maintaining possession and sort of catching their breath and then going forward routinely lost the ball and lost the ball with four and five players, maybe 25 yards from the Swiss goal. And then the U.S. backline or three of the four in the backline still in the U.S. half. And when you've got players that stretched out, even if everybody hustles to get back into shape, you are still sort of having to defend in an improvised way on the fly. And again, with a team that are as drilled and know their patterns and sequences the way Switzerland seemed to, uh, you can't really afford that. And so the, what the U.S. ended up doing, I think, was sitting deeper, trying to hold on a little bit and catch their breath that way. But then you're sort of yielding the momentum and giving it to Switzerland and essentially saying, you got to find a way through to get another goal and we're going to hope to get you on the counterattack. And I think that just wasn't the way the U.S. were set up to play or set up to succeed. I've never been fishing, Taylor. Have you been fishing? There's a point to this, I promise. Yeah. Okay. It's It's been a while, but yeah. So I don't imagine that many people fish with a net nowadays or like actually try to catch fish exclusively mm-hmm. with a net. But Jesse Marsh talks about his team's defensive structure as a net. And, and he's coaching these Red Bull teams with, with the New York Red Bulls and then Salzburg and now with Leipzig for next season. And he wants his players to be compact. And the U.S. were not compact. They were like the worst net in the world. Like they were this net that has eight of the, the links cut in the middle and you, you actually can't catch any fish in it because it's just a big hole in the middle. That's what the U.S. looked like in this game because they were so stretched out. And I think part of that is exactly what you're talking about, Taylor. When you lose the ball in moments where you really can't afford to lose the ball, it's not just because you waste an attack. It's not just because you've wasted that opportunity, but it's because then you're kind of screwed when the ball turns over. You can't regain that structure. You can't sew the net back together in a half a second. You just can't. You need more time to set up that structure and to actually form the net. The U.S. didn't do that in this game, and even when they had the net, I'd have to go back and re-rewatch, which I'm not super keen to do. Maybe I won't. I probably won't. Yeah. But I'd be curious to go back and see and watch all of their counterpressing moments, even when they did have the net ready, because this is something we talked about back in the March window, Taylor, is against, against Jamaica. Jamaica's goal came from a lack of, of counterpressing and a lack of willing even to foul to prevent that counter in the first place. Even if you can't properly counterpress and swarm the ball and win it back and then attack, just stop the play. Manchester City do it so well, and they, they didn't use it to success on Saturday, but they do it so well, and that's part of what makes them such a dangerous team. The U.S. needs that, and I don't think we've seen that so far. I'm not a 1,000% sure on that. Again, I need to go back and check, but I think that could be another component of how their counterpressing and their general structure, their net, could improve going forward into Nations League. Yeah, I like that a lot, and I think it makes a lot of sense because you also sort of want to know where your net is set up. And I, and I think that, that's another aspect of teams that do a really good job of using possession to sort of slow the game down uh, if that's what they want to do. It's also the idea that if you lose possession, in if you're like relying on 5- and 10-yard passes— that at most you're five and ten yards out of position. Mm-hmm. But like the moment I mentioned earlier in the 14th minute when Dest is on the ball, he ends up crossing it to the back post where the U.S. have three sort of static attackers waiting. That's a cross into the box. If headed clear, it can go anywhere. And if you have, let's just say it's just those four, it wasn't because I think you still had uh, another, like maybe it was Leggett at the top of the box. You had Yule uh, somewhat forward as well. 
when that ball is cleared, everybody has to transition back as fast as they can. But they're not in positions where they can do that quickly and effectively. In some cases, it's I've got to hustle 20, 30 yards. And again, it's that sort of improvised way of getting back and getting into a shape that doesn't put you in the strongest position if Switzerland picked the ball up and then counterattack right down the middle. And I think the U.S.'s attack also ended up causing them problems for that reason. I think Switzerland, for their part, then especially in the second half, started to utilize other things the U.S. wanted to do, like like basically things that U.S. saw as their strength, I think, to their vulnerability. And that especially was the case with the way that the fullbacks were sort of pulled out of position on a number of, of, of occasions because Switzerland in their back three with two wingbacks would send those wingbacks far up the field, I think, to try to engage the fullbacks. I sent out a tweet about this one, but they'd try to engage Cannon and Dest uh, for the U.S. And then those wingbacks would drop back when Switzerland were building out. And I think the ideal routinely was that if you are a defender who's now been engaged by that player and now they're sprinting back towards the ball, you're going to track them because you don't want to let that pass be easy. You don't want to give them time on the ball. And regularly, that was the case, that it, if it was Benito on occasion, if it was Rodriguez on the left, or if it was Vidmer on the right, those players would be covered, but then they would play a quick ball to the middle, and then the person who received it, if it was, say, Granite Xhaka, would then ping a ball back into that channel that the U.S. fullback had just vacated in trying to track that run. And the intensity of the press and the way the U.S. wanted to defend, I think Switzerland had a good read on. Credit again to Petkovic for figuring that one out. And sort of having the U.S. play into their own hands almost by capitalizing on that, on then making John Brooks have to deal with a lot of 1v1 situations because Dest was further up the field. I think that was part of the game. I don't think that was Dest leaving Brooks out to dry, but I think it was a pretty big problem in the second half for the United States. Well, in, in your clip that you tweeted and you texted me this too, it's a great spot, Taylor. It's a great spot from you because it is a pattern. We saw it twice in that 35-second, 40-second sequence yep. that you posted. It happens on one side, it happens on the U.S.'s right side, then it happens on their left side. It is this pattern from the Swiss, and it's, this is what really sold me on this whole San Jose Earthquakes analogy, because this is the kind of stuff that good teams in MLS do to the San Jose Earthquakes. And I know this is the kind of stuff that good teams in the Premier League or in the Championship in years past do to Marcelo Bielsa's leads. This is what happens when you defend man-to-man against a smart, well-disciplined, experienced opposing team. Your, your fullbacks get pulled out of position high up the field. You run runners into that gap that you've just created by pulling those fullbacks forward. And that's what Switzerland did. Legit, on the, the second time that Switzerland do it in the clip that you tweeted out, Taylor, Legette's on Zakaria as Sergino Dest is pulled out and pulled forward. And then as Switzerland kind of passed for just a second or two, Legette mm-hmm. doesn't stick to Zakaria anymore. He, he fades inside, which then leaves space in that channel down the wing for Zakaria to get on the ball and cause problems. You can't have that. The margins are so fine when you're defending man-to-man, and the U.S. don't have a ton of experience doing that all over the field. And that's a reason why I think, for me, this game just felt strange, because we haven't seen a lot of that, and it didn't really work for good chunks of this game. So what do you think, like, this is a this is a very big question, which we can revisit later on if we want, but, like, what could the United States have done in that moment? Because let's say Legette is alive to what Zachary is doing, and credit to several different people on Twitter who pointed out that in the first instance in that clip, Weston McKinney is also alive to it and tracks the ball back, makes a good play on it, and I think it's just a an unfortunate bounce that allows the Swiss to keep possession. 
But he does track that one. But the key point there would be that Switzerland then regain possession and keep the ball moving. And if Leggett, uh tracks Zakaria, I think Switzerland do the exact same thing. And so it's a really hard thing to know if you're the United States and you want to kind of high press, but then sit off, but not give up those opportunities. You're essentially trying to do three different styles at once. And mm-hmm. I don't really know how you wed those three together to make a style that doesn't leave you exposed on a number of different occasions. I think you you either go one way or the other. And Berhalter kind of said after the game which way he thinks the team should have gone. You either hmm. go full, all out, and you say, okay, legit, you stick with Zachariah no matter what. Yeah, I know your fullbacks pushed way high up the field. You're the new left back in this, in this moment. Congratulations. You're staying there, dealing with your man and the rest of our 10 outfield players, or, or nine if you maybe have a free center back. They're going to stick tight to their men, too. We're going to win those individual battles, win the duels, and then we're going to counterattack and possess higher up the field. So you either go that way or you say, yo, we need to sit a little bit deeper. We need to be more compact. We need to compress space zonally instead of going full on into this man-to-man style, which worked in moments in the first half, less so in the second half after Switzerland maybe messed with some of their positioning in midfield. We're pulling players out left and right. It, It just wasn't working at that point. So... What the U.S. actually did, though, I think is they just stayed exactly in the middle, and that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. They needed a change, and again, Berhalter fessed up to that after the game, and it's a hard thing to do. You have a bunch of subs coming in. I don't, like, I'm not taking any major things away from the second half, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. I'm not saying, oh, man, now we got to watch out for this hugely high man-oriented press every single game from here on out into World Cup qualifying. I'm not thinking that's very likely, but I do think this was a micro-adjustment that, that could have been made in the second half, and ultimately it wasn't made i think for me the adjustment that i have to make is is remind myself that like like the reality is what it is and the united states can can destroy some opposition and can look very good at times but then against sterner opposition maybe less so and i and i do think that one of my takeaways from this one was just how important tyler adams really is to this team Mm. and what he brings to them because he he not just his ability to cover ground, put out fires, track runners, but also his intelligence, his ability to read what opponents are doing, both on a like systemic level, but also individually. I think he can do some things for the United States in the center of midfield that very few can. If I don't know who else in the pool can handle that one or can deputize in his absence, but I think we saw why there are going to continue to be concerns about Jackson Ewell trying to do it. I think we'll continue to see him. I'm not saying that his time should be done, but I think if you're putting him in a position to do what you need Tyler Adams to do, you're not going to have Jackson Ewell do that. They're just different players. He's not of that level. So you have to adjust what you want to do. You've got to kind of change it up a little bit. And I and I think we have worries about what happens if John Brooks gets hurt or if Weston McKinney gets hurt, or even Christian Pulisic. But I think Tyler Adams might be our least replaceable player because of everything he brings to the equation. So I think we saw that with you. I think we saw that with Kellen Acosta when he came on. Not that Kellen Acosta was particularly poor, just that neither was able to sort of like stem the flow at all. I saw that as being a big vulnerability. And then to go back to Josh Sargent, I did not see Sargent or Sibachu when he came on really have an impact that was necessary. Instead, if anything, I saw a lot of the negatives that you and I have talked about in Sargent's game over the course of the season doing our Americans Abroad reviews, Joe. I felt like we saw some heavy touches, some recklessness when going into challenges, a lack of hold-up play at times. I thought Sargent wasn't the problem, but I think he was part of the problem I don't think that he was necessarily put in a position to shine. I don't think he had a ton of support around him, and I think he was a sort of last, 
desperation. I got nowhere else to go with this. I'm Ethan Horvath, and I'm hoping the ball to Sargent and hoping he does something. But I think he was uh, three for 11 in duels, two for six aerial duels, three fouls conceded, only one foul uh, earned, basically. So I also didn't think we saw a strong performance from Josh Sargent, and that's another area of the field where I continue to have some concerns. I was going to play Josh Sargent defender and, and Josh Sargent, you know, cheerleader for a second. But then you kind of mm-hmm. did it in the middle there. I want to highlight that the U.S. didn't really set up Josh Sargent in the rest of that front three to succeed. I didn't think, especially in that first half on rewatch. One of the main things that I noticed is how direct the U.S. played in buildup. When I think about Greg Berhalter's U.S. men's national team, I think about that 3-0 loss to Mexico and how committed they were to playing out of the press. And Berhalter essentially used that game. This was, I think, October 2019. Baralter used that game to just run a training session, to run a training session against a high press. And so I always think back to that and just in my head assume that, oh, this is the U.S. They play out at all costs, like kind of like Switzerland did in this game. But they don't. And I had to remind myself of that. But they even took it, I think, a little bit further than just not playing out at all costs. They almost avoided playing out of the back at times against Switzerland's 3-4-1-2, 3-4-3 high press. They just played direct a lot. They didn't exclusively play direct. That was maybe a poor choice of words. But in the first few minutes of this game, it was a long ball to Sargent. Then it was one to Reyna. And then a few minutes later, it was one to Aronson. Then more to Sargent. Just over and over again, they looked a little too comfortable for my liking. Maybe not for Greg Berhalter's liking. Maybe there are reasons behind that. I'm sure there are. They looked a little too comfortable for my liking playing the ball long. And that was an issue. That's an issue when you're not winning those physical battles. When you're three for 11 on duels, that's a problem. It's not a problem if you have this giant front line. Maybe if you have Daryl DK in the front line, it's not a big deal. But when you have Josh Sargent, Gio Reyna, and Brendan Aronson, Reyna's probably the most favored to win his individual matchup against the center back. But really all three of those guys, I thought, were outmatched physically against their opponents in those aerial duels. They didn't really have a great chance to bring the ball down in the first place. So I agree, Taylor. Josh Sargent didn't look good. He looked a little bit too much like Werder Bremen, Josh Sargent, not like the U.S. men's national team, Josh Sargent, that we're hoping he's going to be for the U.S. But I'm not sure how much of that is his fault. I tend to think that's that's more on how the U.S. chose to approach buildup in this game. Yeah, and I think that that is maybe an outlier. That is one where it's it's maybe not as fair to put that on Josh Sargent because anytime you have somebody trying to kind of check back 20 yards to challenge for a 50-50 in the air, at best, maybe they're going to get ahead to it. Maybe they're going to cause some concern for the defender who then won't win that header cleanly. So I'm with you on that one. But where I, I, I had more concern, there's two different things. The first would be that I think the U.S. desperately needed a a sort of veteran attacker like essentially Switzerland had across the board in Shakiri, in Embolo, in Seferovic. They had three attackers who rotated well, who combined well, who I think, as you said in the very beginning, Embolo would drop 30 yards back to create overloads and cause problems. And the U.S. didn't have that sort of veteran know-how, especially in the attack, but also in defense. I didn't see Sargent sort of directing lines and telling people to step. And I think you you need a sort of leader up front to pick people up, but also kind of show the way. And the where and where Sargent, I think, in my mind, really let himself down was in that when you are sort of getting into that, that like sometimes the ball is going long, sometimes you're trying to stretch the line, sometimes you're dropping in, but fundamentally you're an isolated striker. 
it means you're not going to get as many moments on the ball. I think he only ended up having like 30 touches or so. So your chances are going to be at a premium. And I don't even mean scoring chances. I mean just opportunities to facilitate attacks and help out. And so when those times come, you have to be switched on. You have to be ready for anything that comes at you. And at least twice in the first half, I saw uh, the one that stands out of my head is Sebastian Legette on the ball, and he's waiting for Sargent to check two, and Sargent is continuing to check away and check away, and finally Legette just pings that ball into Sargent's feet, but he has now only just started to check two when that ball is delivered, and it is because Legette is trying to make something happen, so maybe he could have held off. But simultaneously, if you're waiting another second, somebody can close you down. So I don't really fault Legette for this one. But because Sargent is slow, the ball pops straight up in the air. And then he gets frustrated and throws his hands up in the air. He fights for it a little bit. But I think those moments, there was that one. There was one in, uh, I think that I sent you again, where he he checks back at midfield. It's a ball in from Serginho Dest, who's pulled in, if if not three, then at least two Swiss players. He plays the ball central. Sargent's first touch is 15 yards back, and it's loose. And then he turns the ball over and can't win it back. He has another one when I think he gets the ball back after a Switzerlander sloppy in possession. He turns to do something with it, turns right into a defender, loses the ball. And I just thought those moments, we needed him to sort of lead by example, to slow things down, to be calm on the ball, to make the right choices. And I did not see as much of that as I would have liked from Josh Sargent uh, on the day. Yeah, I mean, that's really good analysis. I can't argue with any of that. It just makes me think, man, when are we going to solve this problem, right? Yeah. When, when are we going to fix this? When is this going yeah. to be fixed for us, I guess, is, is really the, the question I should be asking. Yeah. I don't, like, I, again, this is not time to throw Josh Sargent away. It's not time to throw any of these no. players away. Definitely it just not. is another inconclusive data point where we can say, oh, wow, yep. the system didn't suit him in this game, but then he didn't really shine in spite of that. And so then we're running back in the same circles that we've been running over and over and over again over the last year, two, three years. And it, it, at times it is a little bit frustrating because we don't have an answer. And I think everybody just wants an answer at this point. But maybe Honduras or Mexico, if that happens, will provide a little bit more clarity. I'm not especially confident, but who knows? Well, let, let's talk about maybe some positives to as we get towards the end of this episode. The first thing I would, I would say um, – I don't know if it's a silver lining. I don't know what I would go with. But I, I think back to when the U.S. lost uh, 3-0 uh, to Mexico uh, way back when. And Burhalter, I think, afterwards was sort of confused as to why there were <laughs> yeah. so many people frustrated by the result. And I, at the time, was one of those people who thought, like, how are you confused? We just lost 3-0 to our arch rival. But his point then was we were trying something. We were focusing on learning how to play out, yep. how to build out, how not to kind of just hoof the ball along under pressure. And – if you're seeing it as a this is a learning opportunity, this is a learning experience, uh, I think that was a friendly. This is certainly a friendly. Then I did see some things in this one that we haven't seen. The intensity of that press in the opening minutes, the way the U.S. really went at them and tried to make life difficult. And I think if that's a thing that we're going to continue to do, then – what you have to do is learn from it and improve upon it. And if we see the United States trying to do the same things in the Nations League or in that friendly against Costa Rica, and there are still those problem areas, I don't think any of them, maybe Mexico, Mexico certainly are capable of doing to the United States what Switzerland did this evening. Uh, but I think if we see more of that, then what we're seeing is the U.S. not learning a lesson. But I do want to say, like, maybe Berhalter got some things wrong, could have done some things better, but that's the point of this type of game. So it's really frustrating to lose. And I did have a few bleak moments of like, wow, we are not at the races today. 
But simultaneously, those games are going to happen. You can't win every single game unless you are like Brazil or Germany. You've got to have these downturns to figure out how to fix things, how to get people playing to better as a unit or players that don't quite fit or players that need to be tried in different areas. And I think if that's what this is, if this was a sort of learning opportunity, a learning experience to fine tune some stuff, figure out some other things and throw some other things out the window, then I'm okay with it. But if we continue to do these things and we continue to not have answers about certain players and certain approaches, I'm definitely going to be less okay with it in the near future. Yeah, and that's a really good point. It is this learning opportunity that you still want to win and you still you want to play well and you want to dominate. But it's a chance to see different players. It's a chance to maybe try out different tactics. And maybe we saw that a little bit with how the U.S. chose to approach their press. Maybe that was just a byproduct of how how well the two shapes fit together. Switzerland's you know three at the back shape and the U.S.'s front three. And it all kind of just stemmed from there. Maybe, maybe that isn't a pattern we'll see going forward. But it does give the U.S. a chance to try stuff. That Northern Ireland friendly back in March mm-hmm. gave the U.S. a chance to try out that 3-4-3. Or the three. It looked different in possession. I'm trying to remember what it was. It doesn't <laughs> matter you get the point right it's trying different things and that's not always fun and it doesn't always turn out well but it it does have value both on an individual level and on a team level yes you want to win but I, i think we can both see and we both would would preach the fact that games like this it's not always about the result you don't want to embarrass yourself but there's so much that can be learned tactically and from specific players in a game like this. And, and one thing, Taylor, that I want to point out from this, one positive on an overarching macro kind of level, is we saw the return of the inverted fullback in a way that I don't, hmm. I personally don't remember <laughs> happening since maybe March 2019 against, or, uh, against Ecuador down in Orlando when Tyler Adams had his first cap under Greg Berhalter. He was playing that right-back role, and it's the Nick Lima role that then turned into the Adams role that then went bye-bye for quite some time. But we saw that back, not just on the right side, but on the left side. And I, I thought it worked out pretty well, even if Serginho Des didn't always agree with, uh, with that <laughs> statement or with uh, Brendan Aronson's positioning. Yeah, I did enjoy that. 14th minute is when Dest like makes that run inside, turns to make sure Brendan Aronson is there. Brendan Aronson is not, and you can see the frustration. But yeah, like that that would be a thing where okay, the U.S. is getting kind of overrun in the middle, so now Dest goes central. There's another option to build there, but Aronson can drop back, pull somebody out. Now the U.S. has opened up some space. But did you feel like that was a thing that they were able to take advantage of to use effectively, or was it just a thing that you saw them doing again? And it was sort of like, oh, yeah, we've seen them do that before. They're doing it again. That's exciting. I Yes. Yes is my answer to that question. Yes, okay. I saw them use it effectively, but also I wanted to see more of it. And we didn't see more mm-hmm. of that. And I think a lot of that is the fact that the U.S. chose to play more direct and then didn't win as many balls higher up the field and then couldn't establish that middle possession. Not not in build-up, not in the final third, but in the middle of the field, which is where we tend to see something like this. I thought the the, the one moment, and I'm going to tweet out this clip in, in one form or another later or maybe tomorrow, it doesn't matter, but it's in the 34th minute, and John Brooks is on the ball, Serginho Dest is tucked inside, and, and this time Aronson is ready back out wide. So Dest is, has pulled Switzerland's right wing back inside with him, which I think was the whole point of this movement. Aronson then can pick up the ball on the wing from John Brooks, pulling Switzerland's right center back out. And then you start the domino effect in in the U.S.'s favor at this point. So you've got that gap. The center back's out. The wing back's tucked inside. Dest and Sebastian Legette make a run into the gap that Aronson's created with his positioning. And Legette, specifically with his run, pulls Granite Xhaka back. He, He pushes him back into that gap. 
then Aronson with his right foot can cut inside as an inverted winger in that moment and attack the now vacated space in the middle. So it's gone from space out wide, then space in the pocket after the center backs pulled out, to now space in the middle after Xhaka's had to move. Aronson drives in the middle, plays it to Cannon. Cannon plays the ball into Sargent, who gets ahead on it. Can't quite get it in the back of the net. But it's that positive domino effect this time that's all started because of the inverted fullback pinning that wing back inside and then forcing Switzerland to scramble. We saw similar things from Reggie Cannon, but but nothing quite to that effect and to that quality as that moment in the 34th minute. So then we did see some positives, and oh, yeah. we'll talk about some more positives in, in just a second. The one thing I would go back to for a moment is to say that, uh, Joe, as you said, we're not like throwing any player out of the squad in our minds. There's nobody in, in this team uh, right now that I'm like, nope, that was it. I've seen enough. I know what I need to know. I would say that the way it always is for me is, is it's a constant evaluation of, okay, I didn't see Jackson Ewell look particularly effective like covering lateral space. I know he's not going to be as good as that. So if we are in a game where that's a thing he's being asked to do, I know I'm going to have concerns. So that's how I tend to see things. But I'm really not ruling anybody out. I'm trying to think of the last time there was a... U- there was a U.S. player that I was just like, nope, not good enough. <laughs> uh, and I struggle to think of one. But but I will also say I struggle to think of a time that that substitutions from the United States had so little impact. And that was also sort of strange to me that normally in these in these games, in these friendlies, when there are so many substitutions, at least one will come on and sort of have a few runs, have a few moments, remind us like, oh, this player is really exciting. Maybe they should be getting more minutes. And I look at Tim Ream, DeAndre Edlin, uh, Kellen Acosta, Yunus Musa, Timothy Weah, and uh, Jordan Sibachu. I forget what the name on his jersey was. We got to figure out what his what he wants to be called. I'm sure he said it publicly, and I just haven't followed it. Uh, but. Those six names, uh, I saw some positive moments from DeAndre Yedlin. I saw a couple of decent things from Kellen Acosta. There's one Musa maneuver. There's a great sort of on the half turn turn from Timothy Weah. I, I think you mentioned this one earlier when Weston McKinney kind of plays that ball in. Weah can't get the shot off, but that's a good technical moment. But those are very grasping at straws in terms of overall, there wasn't a big difference. There wasn't a player who came on and had clearly been briefed, don't do this, do do that, don't make that mistake, try this thing, and they did that and it worked. Instead, like Tim Ream, I thought this was one of the poorest performances I've seen from him in a yeah. while. Granted, I haven't seen as many performances from him, but he comes on, and the one that really stood out to me was I think it was the 84th minute is when Ream is basically tracking Mehmedi, who's subbed on, uh, because the U.S. give up possession around midfield. They're trying to transition back. Ream is doing a good job to cover Mehmedi, but then makes the choice to continue to run back and get into the back four shape. And in so doing, leaves McMeady to basically receive the ball, and now Mark McKenzie has to make a choice, and McKenzie sort of steps, but Ream then sort of covers the space as McKenzie sort of steps. It's a lot of half measures and sort of's here, and that's how Severovich ends up getting played in because Tim Ream is moving the wrong way as the ball is played. He loses position. I think he's going to lose that foot race anyway. Then he loses the challenge. Severovich ends up shooting wide, but that's another one that easily could have been another goal. And I just didn't expect that from a player who had just subbed on, and especially a veteran player who seems to have the trust of Greg Berhalter above many other players. That just seemed like a, a good sort of minor example, but important example of the subs coming on and really not having a huge impact. I mean, Sibachu, I routinely forgot, was on the field. I think he only had like 
may I think he had two passes and maybe like 14 touches total, something like that. So a pretty minimal impact from the substitutions all around, unless, Joe, you spotted some things that I'm not giving credit to. No, I'd love to pull another four Musa maneuvers out of my hat, but that's that's not going to happen. <laughs> they didn't have much impact. I, I don't disagree with anything no. you just said. I do think, though, for me, it's just so hard coming into a game like this. You're down, the yeah, team's playing, and it's, it's, it's such a strange game at this point, and then everything changes. You bring on six guys, five guys by the 72nd minute, and then Yedlin comes on 10 minutes later. Everything kind of is different at that point, but I will say, Taylor, as much as, a, as I want to put that disclaimer on, I totally agree with your Tim Ream analysis. He... I guess my opinion of him didn't change. And my opinion of him offensively is very yeah. high and defensively is very low. Not unlike John Brooks, which is a bit of a problem to have two very similar center backs with similar weaknesses that are really the top two in the left center back depth chart. There are issues there. And Reem, I, I, I definitely don't think he covered himself in glory in this game. Yeah. And and John Brooks had his moments in this one yeah. where there's definitely the one. Is it Embolo who just cuts right around yeah. him and gets the shot yes. off? Yes. Traffic uh, but, going. Traffic but, going. But that is another example, as we've been talking about, of Brooks having to cover that channel while also covering the center of the field. Sure. And if you're trying to do two things, I think in the first half we saw him, when he is just in a 1v1 situation, slow the play up or oftentimes poke the ball away, win the ball back. In this case, when he's trying to hold position in the middle and track a run, but also cover wide, he has to pick this moment and tries to step to it and ends up lunging in. But I don't have as much issue with him on that one just because I think they were other issues around him that sort of uh, facilitated that problem. Uh, but Joe, I feel like I keep going back to the negative, and I don't mean to, because I, I would like to end this one by talking about the positives that we did see. I, I, I won't go so far as to say, like, what do we want to see uh, in the Nations League to make us feel better? Because short of the United States playing Mexico and having this system just work perfectly, I don't think that there's an opponent that is going to be of the level of Switzerland that will make us feel like, okay, never mind, they figured it out, they've solved this, it can work. So I think what I want to see, uh, it's Honduras we have in our next game, correct? Yes, yes, sir. Against Honduras, I want to see just the U.S. look dominant, look confident, create good goal-scoring opportunities against uh, weaker opposition, get into good attacking positions, really take the game to Honduras, and really make it difficult for them from start to finish. So I, I would like to see aspects of this game kind of ported over and utilized and fine-tuned and improved, but I also think until we see the U.S. doing it against Mexico or stronger opposition down the road, I'm going to have some concerns. I'm going to have some questions. Joe, who do you have fewer questions about? Who do you have positive things to say about from this game? Quickly, one thing I do want to see against Honduras is that net oh, sure. improve. Just just to have that on record so yep. that we can come back to it later this week sure. or right, right, Sunday. So yeah, later this week or next week, whatever you want to call yeah. it. I want to, I want to see that. See if the net gets tighter and if it gets sewn together a little bit more carefully. A player that I don't right. have as many questions about based off of his performance in this game was Brendan Aronson. I thought he was really bright. Yeah. If you if you close my eyes or taking off my glasses and not giving me my contacts and erased all memory that Saturday's Champions League final happened, I think I could be forgiven for mistaking Brendan Aronson for Christian Pulisic out there. Really? The, the way he cut inside onto his right foot in that moment that I talked about in the 34th minute, the way he threatens in and around the box and just looks so quick to cut inside and to cause problems, I thought he looks bright. He He needs to uh, start crushing some protein powder or hit the weight room or, or, or something like that because he did still get bodied off the ball a little bit too much. 
But he continues, every time I see him for the U.S. men's national team, he continues to cement himself in my mind as a very important player, if not a starter, a very important backup for Christian Pulisic or just a, a spot starter on the other side if you need a change of pace from Gio Reyna or Tim Weah. I also do think that Brendan Aronson would be the type of player that like Bruce Arena would have taken to the 2002 World <laughs> Cup. Yeah. Like, it's that, you're right, he gets bodied, but he's going to get up Every single time, yep. even when he's hurt, he's going to get up and fight. And that's what we saw from him at Salzburg this season. Obviously, that's what we saw from him uh, with Philadelphia uh, in the past. And and I do just enjoy that he doesn't back down. He keeps going. He keeps trying stuff. And I think we saw moments, as we've already talked about, where maybe his decision-making was a little slow. Maybe his decision to take people on 1v1 versus find a, sure. a simpler, better pass. Sure. But I think that's to be expected from a young player who's sort of figuring things out and making a really big jump over a not big period of time. So I think, yeah, that he it wasn't even necessarily one of those games where it's like he didn't stand out in a bad way. So that's a positive. I saw positive things from him. I saw him trying stuff and I just saw that fight from him that I didn't see from some of the other players. So, yeah, I'm with you. I I liked what I saw from Brendan Aronson. I think I mentioned earlier, I liked what I saw from Mark McKenzie. I think the moments he did have that were maybe not great, not highlight real defending. A lot of those were a little bit diffusion of responsibility because he's trying to cover a runner who's come through while tracking a, a mark of his own, or he's having to put out a fire that maybe wasn't of his own creation. But I thought for the most part, he did well individually. And then I thought the partnership with Brooks when Brooks was on the field also looked pretty solid. Yeah, and that's overall a good takeaway from Mark McKenzie. And it's good that we have a, a generally mm-hmm. positive impression from him because the U.S. comes into this four-game window without Chris Richards on any of their final rosters. And he's a guy that I think we were so excited to see and to watch him play and cover John Brooks. And when he's out with a little injury and you don't get to see him, it's time for somebody else to step up. And the fact that he started in this game at all over Matt Miazga, I think, is a sign. And the fact that he he had some bright, positive moments in this game as well, I think that has a lot of value. Another another guy with M in their last name, to start the last name, we, we kind of mentioned it already, but I thought Weston McKinney did fairly well. He, he does track the runner on his side in that clip that you tweeted out defensively. He is, along with Sebastian Legette, responsible for winning the ball a couple times higher up the field in the press that very well could have resulted in a goal for the United States. And we'd be talking about this game maybe in a different way. He was influential at times defensively and then made some nice runs in the attack. He made a, a, a lovely run over the top to get on a ball from John Brooks in the second half and then played that just delicious ball into Tim Weah in the box in the 82nd minute. There were there were certainly a lot of things to like from Weston McKinney. Not a perfect performance, not even his best performance, but a good performance. Yeah. And I want to I want to focus in on that defensive effort for a moment because in the sequence I mentioned earlier with Tim Ream, uh when Switzerland get the ball and start that counter, Weston McKinney is around their 18 and he motors to get back into position and then does the sort of understandable thing of like slows it down, recognizes like, OK, I've gotten back into shape and then realizes other people have not. And then the motor increases and he's back to full <laughs> sprint. And he ends up putting in like an 80 yard sprint in the 80 something minute. I think it was 82nd, 84th it was so that he is still going to that degree and has that awareness in that moment. I'm with you. Uh, not like his greatest performance ever for the U.S., but another 
solid to strong performance when there weren't as many of those. I would say the final one that I had positive things to say about was Ethan Horvath, who we haven't yet talked about, but started in goal for the United States, uh, makes a big save with his face, and that is an easy thing to make a joke about, but the reality is he's off his line, he cuts the angle, he stands up, he makes the save, he then makes a repeat of that pretty much exact sequence, this time getting it with his kind of trailing hand. So two good saves with good positioning. Um, I also, uh, I think it was Max Bray pointed out that for the penalty that Switzerland had that uh, Rodriguez hit wide he dives the right way he he probably has that one covered if it does end up going on frame so I, I would chalk that up as a positive and then just as a reminder that when we last saw him I believe was the last time we saw him uh, he had the howler against Portugal or that's the one that looms large so to see him come in not make those big mistakes make some big saves I'm not really putting either goal on him I don't think there's much else he could have done I think there were other issues going on there I thought overall a good performance from Ethan Horvath at a time when we really do not know who our second choice goalkeeper is I think there are many different options but at the very least he did nothing to hurt his competitiveness for that backup position yeah I agree I think he he did quite well in this game overall shot stopping wise I think he did well with this feet I think he did pretty well I don't think I don't think he was the reason why the U.S. played more direct I think that was some sort of instruction from the coaching staff so I'm not going to say oh Ethan Horvath's not comfortable with his feet that's why Sargent in the front line looked bad in certain moments blah 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 I don't think that's the reason there so yeah a really strong performance from Ethan Horvath overall and one that I think does him quite well in that depth chart race that uh is essentially the world versus Matt Turner and the analytics community as as I've chosen to label it (laughs) Uh, so we do have another game this week. It is the Nations League semifinal. It is against Honduras. We would assume that we will have Christian Pulisic and Zach Steffen back for that one. There were no big, big injuries that I'm aware of, so we should have mostly a full-strength team. We still don't know about Tyler Adams and what he will be able to do. Joe, are there things—this is the big question. I apologize for springing it on you at the very <laughs> end. Are there things you would like to see the U.S. do if— Tyler Adams can't go because Jackson Ewell feels like a player who can be more productive and look better when the U.S. have more of the ball and are more consistently attacking. As we've already talked about, I don't think he's going to give you the defensive cover you need against stronger opposition. Against Honduras, are you okay with seeing Jackson Ewell because there's the assumption we would have more opportunities, we would have more of the ball? Or would you rather see other options, other players played there or other shapes entirely? No, I'm comfortable with it. Just like I was comfortable with him getting a run out in this game, seeing what he could do. I thought the U.S. would have more of the ball in this game, so I kind of thought this game would function as the game you were talking about, but maybe in hindsight that was foolish given how well Switzerland played and how dominant they were with the ball at times. But I have no issue with him getting a run out against Honduras. I also have no issue with Kellen Acosta reprising his role from that Jamaica game in that three-man midfield. Maybe Yunus Musa climbs into the starting lineup, and we see some of those rotations where Acosta makes those runs forward from that sixth spot, and Yunus Musa just sits back a little bit deeper in some moments, and then it's just fluid three-man midfield. Maybe it's Weston McKennie in there alongside those two. I'd also be really intrigued and interested in seeing that. So, Taylor, I I really can't complain, and I don't think I will complain unless something goes horribly wrong uh, if we see either one of those two guys start at the six, assuming Tyler Adams isn't ready to go. And then the final question for you, who would you like to see start up top against Honduras? If it were just two more friendlies, I would be okay with it being like Sargent again and then somebody else in the second game. But that second game would be the Nations League final if the U.S. gets there 
possibly against Mexico. So I don't want to then go with an experimental look there. So maybe we experiment against Costa Rica in the final friendly, and we go with the same starter for both of those games. But if so, who do you want that to be? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, because then you get into minutes management, right? And how do you yep. how do you allot those minutes? Because I think I'd, I'd rather see Josh Sargent there over Sipachu for this next game. I, I just I think Sargent's a yep. better player. But I don't know if we will because Sargent played, what, 72 minutes in this game? And then a few days later, you're running him out for another one. And then hoping you get to play him again against Mexico? That just doesn't seem likely. So my answer, Taylor, is Tim Weah. I don't think that's going to happen, but I'd love to see a slightly more experimental look against Honduras. You have Weah who can stretch the line. He can drop in. He's super crafty and creative. He's a vertical threat as well. He can do all sorts of different stuff and provide a lot at that nine spot. I'd like to see him over Sibachu, but I think it would make sense to see Sibachu. Now it's just up to Burhalter to see if I made a total fool of myself answering that question. And we should note, uh, I'm correct in saying that Daryl DK not in the Nations correct. League squad, right? So though he is with the team, could have played tonight, can play against Costa Rica, will not be playing in that game. So that's why we have not mentioned Daryl DK here. So it's either going to be Sergeant Sibachu or maybe the outlier Timothy Weah, unless things are changed up drastically. Would you like to see a front three of Aronson, Pulisic, and Reyna and just have them all over the place? <laughs> I would. I don't know that you have a guy who can play that nine spot and, and drop in consistently yeah. and effectively. That would be so fun to watch. I don't know if it would work, but I would, I'd watch the heck out of that, Taylor. All right. Well, we are going to watch the heck out of that game <laughs> against Honduras, and then we will be covering it on this show. We got a lot of shows this week, Joe. We're also doing Champions League Review tomorrow morning with Ryan Bailey, doing a few listener questions in there. We have our Euro previews starting to come out this week. We've got Allocation Disorder at the end of the week. We've got Nations League in there as well. The busy season is upon us and is only going to get more intense from here, Joe. So how are you feeling about this week? Bring it on, man. Bring it on. No, it, it'll <laughs> be good. It'll be good. I'm super excited. We have lots of fun stuff. Like all, Everything you just said, I think it's going to be so much fun. Uh, unless you're a Manchester City fan, in which case, uh, listen anyway yeah, on that. Monday morning. But uh, sorry, I guess. I think our, our our first our first three show day in a while will be tomorrow. So wish us luck. But for now, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about the USA's two to one loss to Switzerland this evening. It was not the most fun game, but it's always a good time chatting with you. You got to tailor right back at you, my friend. Listeners, always a good time to talk to you. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to this one as well. We very much appreciate it, and we will talk to you all again very soon.